Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. Guy walks into a bar, and he's got this huge cricket growing right out of the center of his forehead. Bartender looks over, does a triple take, and says, My gosh, man, where did that thing come from? Cricket says, I don't know, started as a pimple on my butt. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a not-so-classy joke from the very classy, best-selling crime author Robert Crace. Not crass. That'll help break the ice. Uh, his book, Taken, came out this week. Later, we'll hear from the movie star Antonio Banderas, the voice of Puss in Boots, which just got an Oscar nomination. Also coming up, a dinner party soundtrack from electro-pop duo Chairlift, and etiquette tips from metal band Megadeth. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. But first, reality. And by reality, he means the news, but this is a podcast. We don't do the news. So, next segment. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. Coming up in honor of the Sundance Film Fest, Dana Harris, editor-in-chief of IndieWire, tells us about past buzzed-about Sundance films that fizzled. Buzz and fizzle. Yes. They sound like British cartoon characters. Yeah. It's cute. <laughs> I'd watch that. And their little dog, Pip. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. <laughs> These are some of the cultural headlines you may have been hearing this week. Republican candidates take the gloves off in another debate. Hit singer Seal and his supermodel wife Heidi Klum going their separate ways. Martin Scorsese's Hugo leads this year's Oscar nominees with 11 nominations. Now for something you haven't heard, we turn to Sadie Stein. She is the deputy editor of the Paris Review. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about at your civilized dinner party this weekend? (laughs) (laughs) What I'll be talking about is uh, an article I read in The Guardian, which talks about Charles Dickens and his lifelong interest in interior design. Really? Really? Yes, indeed. Like he liked... I didn't know he liked anything other than soot-covered well, walls. Interesting. You, sh- you should mention his, his predilection for soot because this was probably in stark contrast to his deprived childhood uh, um, uh. where he was farmed out and kind of had no comfort and, and no luxury. Hmm. And so he overcompensated perhaps in later life. And then, too, I mean, if you read his work, his fixation on detail sure. and his vivid descriptions of rooms, you know, it makes all kinds of sense that he'd apply that to everyday life, too. But I thought that was because he was paid by the word. Right? <laughs> That's true. It never hurts. Yeah. <laughs> but, but so tell me more. How did his love of interior design manifest? Well, this one author went back to his correspondence and she just found these myriad references to the decor of his home. And also, you know, he ran this home for fallen women, Urania Cottage. And apparently he was obsessive about how it was decorated Weird. and really felt this would have an impact on, on their moral development. And wow. it must have been quite an irritating um, <laughs> boss. A micromanager. Yeah, totally. A total micromanager. Why don't you just write? That's what you're good at, Dickens. Exactly. Yeah. Are there any examples, uh, one of the descriptions they found? Oh, yeah. Here's one. Um, Decorators depend on a dark carpet and a light ceiling to give the effect indicated by decorative principle, some aid being given to a dark skirting board and a cornice of light and bright colors. But there seems to be no reason why the hangings on the wall should not do their part. Wow. Wow. So this is sort of like uh, saying that 
you should pay attention to the paintings that you put in a room. Yeah. Neglect nothing, exactly. Unlike other Dickens pieces, that did not make me cry. <laughs> so, well, the paintings would be of like orphans with big eyes. Oh, I see. Exactly. I see. <laughs> I see. Keen paintings. Sadie Stein, thanks so much for the small talk. Oh, my pleasure. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our extra fancy history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week back in 1972, an amazing discovery was made on the island of Guam. Now we doubt the folks at your dinner party will know what it was. Our friend Michelle Philippi tells the story. On January 24, 1972, Shoichi Yokoi rose from the dead manner of speaking. See, Yokoi was a sergeant in Japan's Imperial Army during World War II, and he was killed in action in 1944 when U.S. troops decimated Japanese forces in Guam. Cut to 28 years later. A couple of locals were hunting in the Guamanian Mountains when they came upon a skinny, bearded old man by a river. Surprised, he attacked them, so they clobbered him and hauled him down to the local cops. You guessed it, it was Sergeant Yokoi. He hadn't been killed. He'd been living in a cave for almost three decades. His diet? Fruit, frogs, snails, and rats. His clothes? He made himself out of tree bark. His only other possessions were an embroidered belt from his mother and a Japanese flag. Yokoi had known for years that the war was over. But like all Imperial soldiers, he'd been taught that surrender was worse than death. His first words after being sent home to Japan, quote, I am ashamed that I have returned alive. The Japanese gave Yokoi a hero's welcome. They showered him with gifts and cash, and six months after his homecoming, he got married. Until his death in 1997, he gave lectures about living simply. He once suggested golf courses should be plowed over and planted with beans. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Jeff Pleadwell. He's the owner of Jeff's Pirate Cove in Guam. And the bar is situated not too far from Yokoi's cave. And in fact, Jeff, you actually met Yokoi on several occasions when he returned to the island. Yeah, I met him a couple times. What was he like as a person? Very quiet, very humble, very uh, smart, observant, and friendly. He was a good guy. Yeah, and he became later like a proponent of kind of clean, simple living. Yeah, he was a very, very conservative guy. I think he was probably happier up there than he was when he went back home to Japan. So, forgive me for asking, but is your accent typical of Guam? No, I'm from uh, Hingham, Massachusetts, and here I'm still on the southeast coast because caused me not to lose my accent. <laughs> I knew there was something uh, off. Okay, well, usually on the show, we have a bartender create a brand new cocktail, but it sounds like you already have a drink for Yokoi at your bar. Yes, it's called Yokoi's Green Scene. Okay. And it's made with Captain Morgan spiced rum, mm -hmm. Midori, pineapple juice, coconut syrup, a little bit of sweet and sour, and then it's blended frozen, and it turns out green, and it's uh, <laughs> delicious. And did you make it green because he was, like, eating vegetation up there? I call it the green scene because where he was was all green bamboo along this river, this uh, Telefofo River was... Uh, 
real pretty green bamboo. Yeah. And so if I wanted to um, disappear for 28 years, would you recommend Guam? Yeah, I'd recommend Palau or Guam or, you know, any of these beautiful islands out here where it's never cold. So maybe Yukoi was on to something. It's a very, very good life here. So, Brendan, amazing story. Yeah. It turns out, though, that Yokoi wasn't the last Japanese holdout from that war. Wow. Yeah. In 1974, they found two more soldiers hiding out. One of them in the Philippines actually had to be ordered to surrender, which is amazing. Well, you know, you wouldn't turn yourself in either if you were hiding in Imelda Marcus's shoe closet. No. <laughs> that is true. You know, it's colorful there. It's spacious, probably. Climate controlled. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, surrender to our cocktail recipes. Their dinner party download.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. Our guest this week is Dana Harris, editor-in-chief of IndieWire, one of the top indie movie sites on the web. She attended the Sundance Film Festival, which wraps up this weekend. At Sundance, little indie movies get bought by big studios for big money. Dana lists some big flops that resulted. Hi, my name's Dana Harris, and I literally just got back from Sundance, and it's been a crazy week. Uh, We thought that maybe people would slow down on buying movies this year because so many of them did badly at the box office last year. And in this case, prior results are no indication of future performance. People are losing their damn minds. They're buying like crazy. So I have a few films here that were uh, really hot titles in their time, and... They really, really failed to make it. My first miss is one from all the way back in 1996, and it's sort of the grandfather of this category, Care of the Spitfire Grill. And this was, God, it was such a bad movie. You know, you saved my bacon in here today, Shelby. After things got sorted out, it went pretty good, didn't it? Yeah, you can say that twice and mean it. I was just gobsmacked when I saw it. It was because I'd heard so much about it. They paid $12 million for it, I think. And that's $12 million in 1996. And if I remember it correctly, there were two companies from the same studio that were bidding against each other. So they're actually driving the price up for their, for their parent company. And it was just this relentlessly sappy, sickly sweet, absolutely impossible film about this diner and somebody got sick and it was really tragic. And it was awful. It was just awful and unbelievably manipulative. Caught Joe, he's bringing the truck round back now. We gotta get you to the hospital in Lewiston. Just don't touch my leg. It's the only place in 100 miles got a doctor can fix that. Just stay away from me. You wanna find me, old woman? Have at it. But come hell or hot water, that's where you're gonna go. I think one of the reasons that movie was attractive, though, it was very shiny, very well, you know, very polished. And back in the day, that was a mistake people used to make a lot, is they would mistake a well-crafted film for a good film because there are so many films obviously at Sundays that are not well-crafted and when they saw this I think they just thought oh my god it's indie and it's shiny and it was awful all right the uh, second movie Hamlet 2 yeah, 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 yeah. Hamlet 2 I wish were better everybody wishes it were better uh, Focus Features wishes it were better because they're the ones who bought it it starts Steve Coogan as a has-been actor who is now a teacher at a high school of drama, and he decides that his big break is going to be writing and directing Hamlet 2. Hey, it's done. What is? My original work that's going to say drama, the thing I've been working on for the last 47 billion hours. (laughs) Hamlet 2? The deuce, correct. Uh, 
Doesn't everybody die at the end of the first one? I have a device. The time machine that's, door that's the device. opens, revealing Hamlet, Gertrude, Polonius, and Hillary Clinton having what appears to be group sex. It's, it's about my troubled relationship with my father. I love Steve Coogan. Love Steve Coogan. It just doesn't hold together across the board. It's sort of a studio mistake because it's a, you know when studios are looking at projects, they will often say, oh, but that's going to be a great trailer. And they can get lost in selling it and not actually say, well, what's, what are you going to do after those three minutes are over and for the rest of the movie? And that was kind of the case with Hamlet 2 as well. I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay for the summer. The final film is last year's Like Crazy. Like Crazy is a romance about two college kids who fall in love and have to deal with the consequences of it. She's from the UK, he's American. I can't go back. We have so much fun. It's a really well-made movie, but it's a very quiet movie, really. It's nothing. It's not that showy. One of the tricks of getting any indie film to reach a wide audience, and, that, and let's be clear here, in terms of all these films that we're talking about, when they're big buys, when there's a lot of money against it, you have to figure out how to get a lot of people to see it. All these small things that are so beautifully observed and so charming, they have to have some reason that you wouldn't, I'm looking at Fandango or whatever, and I'm going to say, oh, I want to go see that. Like Crazy didn't have that. You know, the buzziest films never succeed. It is a given that for all the films that are bought, there's going to be, you're going to look back and say, my God, what were they thinking? And I'm sure that will be the case this year, too. The guest list from Dana Harris. She's editor-in-chief of IndieWire.com. And Brendan, I don't know if it's any consolation to the filmmakers at this point, Mm -hmm. but after hearing that, I'm actually going to check out Like Crazy. Yeah, it sounds sweet, right? Yeah, and I'm a softie to begin with. Well, on the other hand, I'm going to be suing the creators of the Spitfire Grill for injuries incurred while finding clips for that piece. (laughs) I am sorry you had to go through that. I want my two hours back. Uh, (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a break, but coming up, your etiquette questions answered by one of the men behind the band, Mega Death. It's Mega Etiquette when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, acclaimed author Ben Marcus reads from his book about a world where words do hurt as much as sticks and stones. And later, Rico learns about the Culinary Olympics. Yeah, it's like the real one, except the competitors use butter instead of steroids. Wow, me too. (laughs) You are a food athlete, Ben. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette segment. And here to answer listener questions about how to behave is Dave Ellefson. He is one of the founding members of heavy metal band Megadeth. They, along with Metallica and Slayer, changed the face of heavy music in the 80s with their creation of the thrash metal genre. They just launched a tour of the United States with Motorhead this week. Their first album was called Killing Is My Business and Business Is Good. Yes. That alone qualifies them to answer your (laughs) etiquette questions. Yes. But what really puts them over the top was Dave's recent enrollment at Concordia University's online seminary program to study to be a Lutheran pastor. Dave, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. How are you guys? All right. How are you? Doing good. How does it feel to be back on tour, right? This is your first week back. It's great. We're actually launching the tour on Thursday here in Camden, New Jersey, and... 
our most recent album, 13, just came out on November 1st, and we went straight down to South America and Central America and yeah. did a, a big month-long tour down there. Yeah. The, the audiences in South America for heavy metal, they are insane. They are huge. Yeah, it, it's it's full-on Beatlemania down there. <laughs> it's hundreds of thousands of people you play for sometimes? Yeah, they're, you know, they, they have the big festivals down there. It's basically like playing a concert for a soccer audience. Oh, man. Sounds are you intense. Little, yeah, are you a little afraid? <laughs> nah, I am fear not. When you're a metal band you're the you're the one they, they love so they fear you <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, you know it's funny because years ago we did a show over up in a little town called Midan uh, Indonesia up north of Jakarta wow. and I remember all the uh, the native armies came down out of out of the jungles and they were basically stand lined up there was like a line when we pulled in with the van to come back to the backstage and they were all lined up with machine guns and <laughs> yeah I mean it was straight out of the National Geographic you know and I remember our guitar player at the time was freaking out I said dude don't worry about it they'll take take out one of theirs before they take out one of ours. <laughs> they love us. We're Megadeth. One quick question before we get into our listeners' questions. You and your family are active in, in the Lutheran Church, and Rolling Stone recently wrote about how you've decided to take some classes on how to become a Lutheran pastor. Well, it's an interesting twist of fate, because as a kid, you know, I was always had to go to—I I had to go. I didn't want to go. I had to go to church, you know, and I grew up in the, on a farm in the Midwest in Minnesota, so— I went to church on Sunday, and I'd sit around daydreaming, drawing pictures of rock and roll stages and KISS logos <laughs> on my church bulletins. You know. I'm sure they love that. Yes. And now here we are years later, and I'm actually going to church, going to school to be a pastor. So go figure. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we have some questions from our audience. Maybe you can create your ministry of etiquette right here. Sure. The first one comes from Julia in Richmond, Virginia. She asks, is there a polite way to get the loud talker at a nearby restaurant table to tone it down a few decibels so I can enjoy myself? Or is it the loud talker's right to shout because he or she is also a paying customer? Mm. Uh, I'd say that it's it's his right, but you know, usually those disapproving glances over the shoulder usually send the message. Mm. Okay, <laughs> I guess. On the other hand, though, you are somebody who's you know been in a metal band most of your life. Maybe your hearing isn't as sensitive as Julia in Richmond, Virginia's. Say what? <laughs> okay, yeah. on to the next question. <laughs> yes. Uh, here's our second question. This comes from Tyler via Facebook, a, a wonderful town. How dark should the lights be at a dinner party? I guess this is being asked of you because, you know, you play a dark brand of metal. Yeah. What mood do you think is appropriate? I think it depends on how good the food is. If the food is fantastic, turn the <laughs> lights up so everybody can see it. If the food's bad, turn the lights down so they can't see what they're eating. I see. Yes. But what happens if they, if it doesn't look good, but it tastes good? Well, uh, let's just say that lighting can hide a multitude of sins. Yeah. And also, since we're talking metal, maybe a flash pot going off every now and then might help. <laughs> exactly. Pyrotechnics to accompany your dinner. Uh, I guess that's what they do maybe like when they bring the dessert and they light it on fire at the table and let it burn <laughs> off all the alcohol. That That's it's essentially kind of a dining flash pot. <laughs> that's true. It's All the right. most metal of meals. Yes, that's a very metal dessert. You can serve side dishes with dry ice. It's amazing. <laughs> that's what you put the shrimp on, actually. The shrimp comes out on dry ice, and then for the big encore on the, is the dessert with pyro. I go. love it. Put on a little symphony of destruction in the background. You're, si, senor. You're good to go. All right, well, this question, it comes from uh, one of our audience members named Mark, and he asks, okay, so how does one react to acquaintances from one's dissolute youth who are unaware of one's changed ways and expect one to party as one once did. 
what are you supposed to do in that situation? Yeah. I think that's People, what he's asking. Which is perfect yeah. for you, right? Like, you have a feeling you don't party quite as hard as you might have at one time, but I bet you there are a lot of metalheads who, like, really want to take you out to party. Sure. Well, the interesting thing is, is when you when you sort of, like, come to your senses and sober up, you can actually stay up later and last longer and have more fun when you're not completely wasted. Mm, and wow. uh, and you actually get to remember what it was and wake up the next day before everybody and remind everybody what a fool they made of themselves. <laughs> Bonus. So life becomes richer, in other words. It, it actually does, yes. Yeah. And and then you sort of become the... Uh, you know, the fly on the wall tape recorder of everything that happened. You're like the black box at a party. <laughs> exactly. <everything>. Exactly. And <laughs> suddenly you're the you're the person that they all fear because you saw and witnessed everything and you remember it. That's right. And you have the power of Twitter and YouTube at your side. Okay, so I guess the, the answer to Mark then is uh, to accept any invitation to party and then just outlast them and embarrass them. Absolutely. Fear not the party. All right. All right. Uh, here's something from Valerie in Lansing, Michigan. I like to eat and cook spicy foods, she writes. Most of the friends that we have over for dinner are also open to spicy food. However, sometimes when we have a larger group over, inevitably there's one that claims they don't like spicy food at all. What is the polite thing to do or say? I have no problem making vegetarian food if there's a vegetarian guest, but do I have to follow the same rules for a non-spicitarian? <laughs> Non-spicitarian, interesting. Well, my first hunch is that's why you serve bread. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Load up on that. Is exactly. What you right? You know, you can serve bread, and then that fills them up and takes care of that, and then you go right from bread straight over to the dessert. Actually, as I'm learning now, so I'm learning these kind of things, and, and apparently back in biblical times, bread was actually kind of a main course. Oh, so you could mm. always you could always go a little New Testament on them and and just defer to the bread <laughs> as, right. as being the main course and it's not spicy. It was good enough for Jesus. Exactly, it's true. It's good enough for the Messiah. Then it should be good for the non-spicitarians. <laughs> All right, let's see how that works out here in the, our modern age. Just let them eat bread, Valerie. Dave Elvison, thanks for joining us. I'm sure parents of metalheads around the country have been heartened by our discussion. Uh, thanks for joining us, and we'll, maybe we'll see you on tour. You're welcome, you guys. Have a good one. Eavesdrop. Author Ben Marcus has won a slew of awards, including three pushcart prizes. His new novel is called The Flame Alphabet. It's been described as a work of intellectual horror. This week, we overhear him read some excerpts. Hi, I'm Ben Marcus, and I've written a novel called The Flame Alphabet. It's about a toxic language. The speech of children makes adults sick, and parents have to decide whether they stay with their children and ultimately die or flee their children and deal with the horror and shame of abandoning their families. It's a, it's a comedy, yeah. He'll feel free to just chuckle through this. In the months before our departure, most of what sickened us came from our sweet daughter's mouth. Some of it she said and some of it she whispered and some of it she shouted. She scribbled and wrote it and then read it aloud. She found it in books and in the mail, and she made it up in her head. It was soaked into the cursive script she perfected at school, letters ballooning with heart-dotted eyes, vowels defaced into animal drawings. Each piece of the alphabet that she wrote looked like a fat molecule engorged on air, ready to burst. How so very dear. 
The sickness washed over us when we saw it, when we heard it, when we thought of it later. We feasted on the putrid material because our daughter made it. We gorged on it, and inside us it steamed, rotted, turned rank. Esther sang as she walked through the house. Her voice was toneless from the throat in a frequency high in warding power. A voice with a significant half-life, a noxious mineral content, that is, if it could be frozen and crystallized, something then beyond our means or imagination. If her voice could have been made into a smoke, we would have known. If you heard it, you were thoroughly repelled. She muttered in her sleep and awake. She spoke to us and to others into the phone, out the window, into a bag. It didn't matter. Nice things, mean things, dumb things. Just a teenager's chatter like a tour guide to nothing, stalking us from room to room. It came in hello and goodbye and any little thing she said. Except Esther didn't much say hello. When she didn't use my name, she said, hey, and daddy, she said chow and okie dokie on her way out, language she shared with some of the gender-neutral underlings incapable of eye contact she prowled around with. And with fingers I dragged my mouth to smile even though it fell slack again when I dropped my hand. The reasoning, when reasoning seemed possible, was simple. Better to stand up to those happy moments if that's what they were, and give Esther a father who wasn't such a spoiler, who didn't turn pale on the occasion of even the most basic speech. But my face leaked force each time. A daughter was someone to pretend to be healthy for. A daughter shouldn't see such sickness. I could speak back to her, and I could hear, technically I could. I could ask about school or the feuds that consumed her, the massive injustices, often by omission, perpetrated by her friends. But the words felt foreign, like they were built of wood, a punishment to my mouth just to extract them, like pulling bones from my head. That suffering would find us in ever more novel ways, we had probably always suspected. Writer Ben Marcus, reading from his brand new novel, The Flame Alphabet, you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. Ow! I'm going to stop talking now. So, we've eavesdropped on an author, had a thrash metal king instruct us on etiquette. Yes. Now it's time for the main course, in which we learn about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And Brendan, this week, a couple hours north of New York City, American chefs will try to qualify for the Bocuse d'Or. Bocuse me? (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure they never hear that. (laughs) Uh, It is a huge biannual cooking competition started by Paul Bocuse, the famed three-star Michelin chef. Mm -hmm. Andrew Friedman writes about chefs in his blog Tokeland and actually wrote a book about the Bocuse d'Or called Knives at Dawn. I asked him what the competition entails. 24 two-person teams come from countries around the world. They each have five and a half hours, uh, which is a long time to cook, Sure. Uh, to put up two platters of food. The platters consist of the proteins, fish or meat, and those are pre-assigned. In other words, all the teams are cooking with the same fish and shellfish. And each platter 
And when I say platter, we're talking about these very elaborate platters that it takes two people to parade in front of the judges has to have what they call a centerpiece and then three garnishes. And when we say garnish, we don't mean... Yes, not parsley. Not parsley or not a you know a side of slaw. It's no. these very elaborate little compositions. Like if you saw, for example, Rasmus Kofed, who won the gold last year, his platter came out, it looked like a special effect. <laughs> I, you've never... You just can't believe that there weren't... What was going on? Uh, laser beams involved. It was just spectacular. What did it look like? I, it's, I, you know what? I'm a professional writer. I can't even put words to it. Just the food... <laughs> just shimmered. It shimmered. It, it was multidimensional. It almost looked like something you'd see more in a jewelry store than in a, in a restaurant. Yeah. I'm not kidding. It was something to see. This was a guy who, by the way, he had won the bronze in 05. He won the silver in 07, came wow. back four years later and won the gold. So th this, this competition does tend to obsess people in that way. It sounds a little crazy, but you know, you've never seen anyone happier than that guy when he... Uh, <laughs> took the big prize. And what kind of cuisine is this? I mean, is this French cuisine or is each uh, team... Well, Paul Bocuse's vision in 1987, uh, he had this very utopian idea that chefs would come from around the world and each of them would cook the cuisine of their home country. Sure. And you have to keep in mind, it doesn't seem all that long ago, but it was a real kind of revolutionary idea. The problem is each country that participates offers a judge up to the competition. Well, when you have people from places as far flung as Mexico, Uruguay, why, what's the one kind of food that is kind of the common denominator? Classic French food or classic European food. And weirdly, so, this competition is held in Lyon, France. Isn't and that strangely, it's held in Lyon. <laughs> so for years, France won this thing. It, interestingly, France uh, last time did not what they call make the podium. There's three medals, like in the Olympics. Sure. And France, for the first time ever last time, did not make the podium. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> Was, Sorry, I shouldn't say well, that. Well, you, you speak for a lot of countries probably. No, but, no. Um, I took French in high school. I, I have great admiration oui. for them. Yeah, c'est bon. Uh, but what rarely happens is it's rare that a non-European country medals. Almost never happens. Now, what what is happening this weekend here in New York? I call it the team trials. They call it the Bocuse d'Or USA. And they've chosen four finalists. And they are going to participate in a little mini American Bocuse d'Or. And the winner of that will be what they call the American candidate to the 2013 competition in Lyon, which happens almost exactly a year from now. Now, I looked at these guys. They all are very, you know, respectable chefs, but none of them are from, you know, Michelin-starred restaurants. Well, it's interesting. Europe has a very long and very proud tradition of culinary competition. It's really part of the, almost part of the culture. Here in the United States, we don't really have that. You know, chefs in this country... One way you could break them down is restaurant chefs and, let's say, hotel and cooking school chefs. Cooking competitions have always sort of been the provenance in the U.S. of non-restaurant chefs. It's just the way it's happened. Several years ago, things changed here. Daniel Balud and Thomas Keller. Two hugely uh, popular chefs. Perhaps the two most respected chefs in this country got together at the behest of Paul Bocuse, actually united with Paul's son, Jerome, who runs the Chef de France restaurant down at Epcot Center in Florida. Oh, wow. And the three of them took over the Bocuse d'Or USA, and all of a sudden there were chefs from these kind of restaurants. In, in 2011, James Kent from 11 Madison Park, which is another three-star Michelin restaurant, James came in 10th. Um, that doesn't sound so great. Well... You know, it's out of 24 teams. You know, kind of the monster that the current guard created for themselves is the expectations are so high. You know, most people here, Thomas Keller, Daniel Baluda are involved. We're going to win. It would be like fielding um, the dream team. But it's it's a lot of work. You know, the, the teams that we go up against, they're picked 
about a year out, which we only did for the first time two years ago. And they get to a point where they're practicing the, these five and a half hours of culinary choreography, you know, 30, 35 times the whole routine. Forget the amount of work it takes to conceive what they're going to cook. Sure. All of which is to say, going back to your original question, you know, some of these guys who are up this year are, are kind of the more traditional type candidates you would have for something like this. And I actually don't think that's a bad thing. I think the flexibility they're likely to be given by the places they work to have more time to practice, you know, at this point in the year, I'm very optimistic. All right, last question. If the team that we pick this weekend wins the whole shebang next year, how big a deal would that be? I mean, the only thing to compare it to really is in 1976, there was the famous Paris wine tasting, the Judgment of Paris, when it was a blind tasting and the American wineries yeah. beat the French. And that was a huge deal. They just made a movie about it, Bottle Shock. Yes. That's how long we remember these things. I think for a cooking team to win over there, this person would be on every talk show and every news broadcast and would really be launched into the stratosphere. Food writer Andrew Friedman. His blog about chefs is called Tokeland. That is T-O-C-Q-U-E. How else would you spell it? You know, Rico, <laughs> I want to see that platter Andrew talked about at the beginning of the piece. You yeah. know, the multi-dimensional and shimmery thing sure. that kind of sounds like a spacecraft. We will we'll put <laughs> photos of it on our website. It actually looks more like Superman's Fortress of Solitude. Appetizing. Gaze upon it at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we're going to take a little break. Coming up, Antonio Banderas talks about playing both a plastic surgeon and a cartoon cat in a single year. Nice. And speaking of cats, celebrated electro-pop duo Chairlift acts out one of their favorite bands. They are first called the Mama Cats and then changed their name to Honey LTD. Those who are dander allergic ready to Claritin when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and in a few minutes, the band Chairlift shares their Dinner Party soundtrack. And man, I have to say, one of the tracks they share has beamed sunshine on my soul <laughs> since the moment I heard it this week. Wow. Yeah. And it was dark in there, too. It, it was. <laughs> uh, but first, a chat with Antonio Banderas. This week, Puss in Boots was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Animated Film, Banderas voiced the main character, Puss. Last year, the week Puss in Boots came out, in fact, I spoke to Banderas primarily about another film he starred in, released the same week, that was Pedro Amadovar's The Skin I Live In. I asked him how it felt to suddenly be everywhere. I get really excited when I am doing the work. When I am promoting, it's, it's done. You know, I mean, you do it because you have to do it. It's part of your professional world. But for me, the point is just when you are on the set, when somebody says to you, action, and they say, God, that, that is what is interesting. And what I am doing, the voice of Puss, um, is just going to the studio and having fun, trying to make people laugh uh, all around the world. Now ye ogre, pray for mercy from Puss in Woods. I'll kill that cat. <laughs> but I will tell you, you know, that I think movies, like art in general, I think it serves many different purposes. It can go from uh, just making people happy to actually explore the complexities of the human soul and the human spirit and everything in the middle. And as an actor, I like that. Uh, like the old 
comics that used to go with a chariot from village to village. Quote you said, you said something like, I don't think of a career, I think of myself as one of those 19th century actors that went from village to village. I just love that idea. And it's a very romantic image. Mm-hmm. They used to play a comedy at three and Shakespeare at night. Everything was possible for them, you know, just to visit different universes. Career is a, is a word a little bit controversial for me. How so? Because uh, suddenly there are a number of things as an actor that you cannot do because you're going to damage your career, <laughs> you know? It starts to restrict you as a human. Definitely. You become contrived. You become too self-important. Sometimes actors, we take ourselves a little bit too seriously. Well, it makes sense that career would be controversial for you because in this movie, people left the screening at cons upset because it was so challenging. Somebody who was more uptight about their image wouldn't have said yes to this. No, but for me it was different because actually I started my career as an actor in movies with Pedro Almodóvar. For me that was the the beginning because yeah. until that time I was an actor in theater. You did your first five films with Almodóvar and at the time you and he were at the center of like a pretty bustling avant-garde movie scene in Madrid. Uh, then you came over to Hollywood. 22 years have passed, and now you're finally reunited. How did you know it was time to work with him again? He approached me and he says, Antonio, I, uh, I found a material that I think uh, you would be interested in. I would like to shoot with you. And he told me the story, and he says, you want to do it? And he said, yeah, you're, you're the only one probably who can do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then many years happened, and then I was coming out of a workshop that I was doing in New York, and I got on the car, and then somebody called me, it was Pedro, and I answered the phone and said, hey, what's up? And he said, uh, it's about time. That's all he said. So in this movie, you play a very successful plastic surgeon who becomes a bit of a mad scientist after the death of his wife and the institutionalization of his daughter. You know, in this role, you have to toggle between moments of almost like Shakespearean drama to scenes from, you know, right out of a horror film. Was that hard to pull off? That, that's the style of Pedro. Pedro can go in page three from the altitudes of Shakespeare to page four, which is almost like a Mexican soap opera. But that's his style. The movie also touches upon perfection, which got me thinking, you know, you are an actor, but you're also a celebrity. And perfection is in some ways the business of celebrity. How do you feel about, you know, being perceived that way? I don't do anything about it. A star is, a, is an actor who plays himself all the time. Mm-hmm. You have to be brilliant all the time. I'm not brilliant all the time. I, you know, I have my own, you know, thing going on. When when you came to America, what was it? Was like 1990, 90. A lot of roles you were getting were kind of like Latin lover roles, right? I have played, uh, you know, vampires. <laughs> I may be actually the the actor in the history of motion picture who played more gays. Still a Latin lover. How is that possible? <laughs> It's unbelievable, but uh, when I came to America, I did horror movies like mm-hmm. Interview with Vampire, musicals like Vita, adventures like Zorro, mm-hmm. Desperado, mm-hmm. then I moved for kids like Spy Kids, kids. Yeah. I did animation, I went to Broadway. I nominated for a Tony, right? Just for a musical, right? For a musical. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, many things happen, but man, when somebody puts a label on you, yeah. you gotta carry it on. <laughs> Like a man. (laughs) Well, look, we have two standard questions we ask everybody on our show. And the first one is, you've been interviewed a gazillion times. What question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Well, you know, at the beginning of my career here, everybody asked me, you know, is that true that when you came to America, you didn't speak English? But after 21 years, the people still ask me that, you know, with my Shakespearean 
English now. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. But they do. <laughs> you like open movies. I mean, you are the centerpiece of English language movies and they're still curious about that. They're still curious about that. Well, I mean, it is a remarkable feat because you were cast for the Mambo Kings and you quick, you had to learn the language phonetically. That's so frightening. Like, how old were you then? Um, I was uh, 30, 30, 30 years old. So to learn a new language, that's pretty intense when you're 33. Oh my God, it was painful. Yeah. Believe me, it was painful. Not so much for, for the movie, because in the movie, actually, you can learn the lines phonetically, so you feel like you are saying something that is meaningful. <laughs> but uh, when I went to dinners and, and you had meetings with other people and everybody was speaking very fast and you don't know what the heck they were talking about, and you feel like an idiot, yeah. in, in, you only have the opportunity to say something that is very simple, you yeah. know, like, uh, I like Los Angeles. <laughs> Antonio really likes Los Angeles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then our other question we ask is, um, tell us something we don't know about you. I want to give my audience something they may not know about you. I am a woman. <laughs> I'm, I'm staring at you right now. You do not have the basic components of a woman, so explain. But I am. Uh, tell, tell me more. My name is Lupe. Hmm. Okay, well, I think this might make more sense to people who've actually seen uh, The Skin I Live In, unless you're being serious. Are you? And, and, and look at my voice. Eh? I am doing a real deep voice, but I am a woman. My name is Lupe, but you can call me Lupita. <laughs> So that happened. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, Banderas is a man who uh -huh. says he is a woman uh -huh. playing a cat. Exactly. Great. His fellow Spaniard, Salvador Dali, would be tickled. Yeah. He would understand. Or his brain would melt. Yeah. And he would paint a picture of it. Folks, we'd like to know if you are a man, woman, or cat. Show us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash dinnerpartydownload. And now... It's time for Chattering Class, in which we speak with someone who knows about something we don't, so we can hold our own if the topic comes up in dinner conversation. Our guest this week is Jared Flint. He is style editor at Park & Bond, one of the foremost high-end men's fashion shopping websites. It's part of the Guilt Group. And since Men's Fashion Week concluded in Paris just a few days ago, we thought we would have Jared school us on a few of the more interesting things we saw come out onto the runways there. Hello, Jared. Hello. Thanks for having me. Likewise, for coming. So what item kind of first caught your eye at Fashion Week that maybe we're going to be seeing a little more of? Well, I think the first thing that was kind of interesting this Fashion Week is the real solidification of the double-breasted jacket. It's kind of been a long time coming for yeah, it. Yeah, we sort of associate that with the 80s, kind of. Right. It's kind of risen from the ashes of the Bill Clinton double-breasted <laughs> 1992 inauguration suit. That kind of had more in common with, like, Millie Vanilli than uh, what you're seeing now. It's really something that can be worn informally now without being embarrassed and without being some kind of, you know, retro, kitsch 90s thing. Or gangster, because that's the other thing. I sort of associate it with either 40s gangsters or sort of like hip-hop gangsters. Well, in the 40s gangster, I think you'd, uh, you'd get a little pinstripe in there, mm -hmm. um, and it would be a bit more of a wider leg. This is all about Neapolitan tailoring, and it's very slim. 
It's usually unstructured, so there's no real lining. There's no shoulder pad element to it. Like you'd have in the 80s, for instance. Exactly. You're not off the set of Revenge of the Nerds. You're... <laughs> You're smooth, you're, you're, you're trimmed with a wide lapel. That's interesting because I was, I was actually going to, one of my questions later was going to be clearly the Mad Men style that we've been seeing for the last few years. Knowing fashion, it couldn't be happy with that for much longer because it's been with us now for, oh gosh, at least a couple of years. Right, so, right. So basically right. The, we're doing away with the single-breasted and going wider in the lapel. Yeah, and you know, I wouldn't say going completely away from the single-breasted. It's timeless and classic and all those overused words, but guys are exploring with a little bit of uh, volume and some color and moving away from that very like slim, minimal 60s gray flannel suit aesthetic. Oh man, that's too bad because I kind of like that. But I mean, it still looks great. If that's your thing, then you can do it and you can own it still. All right. Well, thank you for the permission. Uh, (laughs) What's another thing that sort of caught your eye? Uh, Another thing, and it really, I really caught my eye at the Prada show where, you know, like Gary Oldman and William Defoe closed it out and it was in this grand hall with a red carpet and it, it was full of these coats with these fur and shearling collars, most notably these astrakhan collars, which are you know, baby lamb pelts. Oh, it really, I can yeah, hear I mean, PETA screaming right now. Right, right. And I'm a former vegan. I, and, it, and it kind of, it's this very czarist element and it's this luxurious element, which is funny, you know, now. Yeah, at a time when sort of everybody's downsizing. Exactly, exactly. But you kind of had across the board this return to, you know, the the overzealous usage of animals. At Wheaton, Louis Vuitton, they used a, a crocodile varsity jacket. It's interesting to see. It is. And I mean, do you think there will be a backlash against that if furs are coming back? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the luxury market is kind of exploding right now, and it's catering to that customer, I think. Mm. And, you know, the same reason that action movies are very popular during economic, sour economic times. Yeah. People want to look at fur coats, and they might not be able to uh, afford it, but it's it's something that's aspirational. And a house like Wheaton, if they do sweatshirts, people won't be happy either. So it was time for them to flex their luxury muscles. Well, all right. So close us out on something, maybe the most unexpected thing you saw. Uh, well, there's always a shoe of the season, you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. For the girls' side, and it's like that for the boys' side. And it kind of got hinted at last season, but there was a real, there's a kilty craze right now. It's called a kilty? It's a small leather flap that goes on top of the shoe. It's sewn on top of the shoe. And the, it's kind of perforated and separated at the end yeah. that looks like a, kind of a gladiator skirt or it resembles the pleats in a kilt. And golf shoes, you might say. Exactly. And it's, a, it's often accompanied by tassels. And it's a very traditional thing that this time you saw it on brogues and desert boots and in shows like <laughs> Xenia and Armani. They really embrace this. And it's kind of like the missing link of the men's footwear <laughs> season. They just, they slapped it on there. And it's kind of interesting to see. Also metallic on shoes. Lots of metallic. So like like little metal on toes or something like that? Exactly. It was an Alexander McQueen did little little gold toe caps last season. And you saw it on Givenchy. And, and it was silver this season. <laughs> they moved to silver. They, <laughs> well, they downgraded. That's <laughs> nice. Save us, you know, a, a couple hundred bucks right there. Thank you, guys. Exactly. <laughs> Jared Flint of Park and Bond. Thanks so much for schooling us in fashion today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So, Rico, 
Are you allowed to wear anything underneath kilties? That's an interesting question. <laughs> no, not if you were a true Scotsman. That's what I thought. Yeah, just nude, blistered feet. Yeah, only in summer. You're right. Okay, folks, we've heard some style tips, conversed with a movie star, learned some heavy metal etiquette. There's just one component of a great dinner party missing, some music to play. Here with suggestions are Carolyn Polachek and Patrick Wemberley from musical duo Chairlift. Their highly anticipated second album, Something, just came out this week. They're experts at crafting beautiful, catchy electronic pop music, but they're still getting the hang of introducing themselves. Hi, I'm Patrick from Chairline. <laughs> from Chairline. <laughs> Let's try that again. Just say it. Hi, I'm Patrick and okay, Caroline. Okay. Hi, I'm Patrick. And I'm Caroline, and we are Chairlift. Um, this is our dinner party soundtrack. To start with, I think every cocktail should begin with um, some, some good 60s music. Uh, this is not actually from the 60s, it's from the 90s, so they're cheating a bit, but uh, this is my favorite band, Stereo Lab. This song is called Wow and Flutter. Do you like a martini? Actually, I'm not French, but the song reminds me of being in some kind of um, 60s or 70s bachelor pad with like really amazing like olive and rust-colored carpets and lava lamps and stuff. I really love Letitia Saidia's vocals um, in particular, and also the chord changes in their songs are amazing. They're jazzy, but they're not like cramming them down your throat. It's kind of like psychedelic jazz. So I, I feel like there's a bit of that in our music, too. This next track is by Honey LTD. It's called Silk and Honey. Um, lots of honey for dinner tonight. The breeze surrounds me. This band is pretty rare. I think they were active in the late 60s, early 70s. They were first called the Mama Cats. Meow. Lee Hazelwood discovered them and kind of took them under his wing and um, had them record their one record as Honey LTD. And I think it was a total flop where like only a few copies got printed, something like 75 or 100 copies got printed and they're actually worth an incredible amount of money now. And I've scoured the internet trying to find a good, clear version of the song, but actually the YouTube one is the best version that I found, so I've ripped it, and that's the one I listen to. This next song has an obvious place at our dinner party um, that we've invited our very close friends to. It's by a group called Heat Wave. This is the part of the evening that we might make a fire in the fireplace and then invite anyone who's too drunk to drive home to crash on the couch. Happiness, togetherness, lovingness, foreverness. It's love, I guess. That's why I'm blessed. Peacefulness. Folks tend to say when I'm not with you. This was a band that um, we hadn't really heard of when we were making the new record, but after Caroline showed it to me, it was like obvious. When I first heard this, I was like, oh, this is like Patrick's theme song. Everything about this reminded me of Patrick. So I just, Patrick is a very soulful dude, and he likes um, Rhodes piano and jazz drum kit, anything from the 70s usually. 
Um, he likes soulful singing, falsetto, and super positive, loving lyrics. Sharing with you happiness, togetherness, loveliness, foreverness. It's love, I guess. That's why I'm blessed with peacefulness. After the song, everybody's feeling pretty crazy. So we play them one of our songs. It's called Eminem Anesia. Well, this is after the dinner party is way over, and either it's like three in the morning or it's the next morning, and people are getting up and like, oh man, sorry about last night. <laughs> and if it's not in the morning, if it's still the nighttime, we're probably dancing around or doing charades or going on a joyride. So, this is the theme song to all those things. That's your dinner party soundtrack from Carolyn Polachek and Patrick Wemberley, a.k.a. Chairlift. You'll find a list of all those songs at dinnerpartydownload.org. And that's the dinner party for this week. Be sure to tune in next week when our guest of honor is Berenice Bejo. She just got an Oscar nomination for the silent movie, The Artist. Don't worry, there will be sound. Phew. Speaking of which, our sounds wouldn't be possible without the help of Jackson Musker, the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Thanks also to Brendan Willard, Jeff Peters, Peter Clowney, Ellen Gettler, Craig Curtis, and Judy McAlpin. Bon appétit.